Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. Joining me is Dr. Kelly Hareide, the Director of Catastrophe Research and Development at Liberty Mutual Insurance. This was a fascinating discussion for me. Kelly takes us through the tool of catastrophe modeling and explains why it could be useful for adaptation planners. We also learn how the insurance industry tries to make the uncertain nature of hurricanes and climate change more predictable. Yes, it's possible, and you'll learn how climate translators help in that process. We also discuss the wild, wild west nature of the climate data and modeling industry and how you can potentially avoid using bad information in your planning. We also discuss the unique and controversial role citizens' property insurance in Florida plays in coastal planning. It's a fantastic discussion, definitely one where you're scribbling down notes. Trust me. Okay, upcoming episodes. I'm working with partners to highlight the adaptation resilience funding of the infrastructure bill that passed in 2021. I'll talk to governmental, NGO, and private sector reps to understand how that legislation can supercharge adaptation planning across the country. I'm also working on an episode focusing on mangroves as a nature-based approach to coastal adaptation. I'm partnering with World Wildlife Fund on that one. Great stuff on the way. All right, you've been hearing a lot about this event on my podcast. For those who are looking for an adaptation conference, I've got a sensational opportunity for you. Join me and my partner, Battelle, for the next annual Innovations in Climate Resilience Conference, or ICR23. The conference will take place on March 28th to March 30th, 2023 in Columbus, Ohio. I've been promoting this partnership for several months now, and I'm hearing back from some of you that you are planning to go or very curious to learn more. Patel is taking a lead in the resilience space, and they want you to learn more at their conference in Ohio. Climate adaptation is still an emerging field, and we're still not seeing participation from all sectors at many of our meetings. This conference has a track record of bringing in government, nonprofit, academia, and the corporate sector. Very few conferences have had success bringing in the private sector, but this one does. Industry will play an increasingly important role in the years ahead with adaptation. Guys, this is a rare opportunity for all relevant players to come together to share expertise and create new partnerships. The call for abstracts is now open. Here's your chance to share your important work at ICR23. Some of the program themes include ecosystem restoration, sustainability, climate risk and national security, resilient built infrastructure. Take a look at their conference website to learn more. Even if Presenting isn't in your plans, I encourage you to attend and connect with your peers. Think of all the partnerships and projects that are created during coffee and lunch breaks at these conferences. There's a huge demand for more adaptation-themed events, so definitely check this one out. Don't forget, submit your abstract today. Visit patel.org forward slash adapt to learn more. That's patel.org forward slash adapt. Links are in my show notes. Support for America Adapts comes from Battelle, where science and technology are applied to help create a safer, healthier, more secure world. Okay, let's join Dr. Kelly Haride and learn how the insurance industry is making the uncertainty of adaptation planning more certain. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. Joining me today is Dr. Kelly Haride. Kelly is the Director of Catastrophe Research and Development at Liberty Mutual Insurance. Hey, Kelly, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to do some really fundamental stuff right now. For those who don't know, and this is probably not many, what is Liberty Mutual Insurance? <laughs> the perpetrator of all of your favorite commercials on TV, right? Exactly. Um, I am a, a very large property and casualty insurance company. So it means we dabble in a little bit of everything. That means homeowners. So, you know, you have a house and you go buy your homeowner's insurance. We do auto, we do commercial policies, we do a little bit of everything. 
All right, going to get a deal at the end of this. Okay, so briefly, (laughs) and we're going to talk about a lot of the things that you do there, but just briefly, what is your role at Liberty? So I sit within an enterprise risk management group, which means that it's part of my job to think about the big risks that could potentially threaten an organization. And as a specialist in climate change, that's an area where we spend a lot of our time. So we work with tools that are called catastrophe models, which are basically giant data sets that run you through everything horrible that you can think of that can go wrong in the world. So it includes things like natural disasters, hurricanes, floods, earthquakes, wildfires, but also weirder stuff like terrorism and cyber attacks and things like that. So we dabble in a little bit of everything. I will say it makes us super fun at parties where we think about disasters day in and day out. Yeah, don't hang out with the climate change crowd at cocktail hours too. That's just a it's a very dark place. But all right. Yeah, a professional bummer is my right. job. <laughs> so let's dig into your background just a little bit. You have an unusual background and you're at Liberty Mutual. So tell us a bit, you know, your educational background and just how you kind of got there. Yeah, so I am a geologist and climate scientist by training. Basically, when I was in school, I studied thousand-year-old dead corals. So I also kind of have no idea how I ended up in the insurance sector. But I was really interested in how variability happens within our climate. So I focused on El Nino and La Nina, which you may have heard we're going into our triple dip La Nina this year. It's one of our biggest drivers of the year-to-year changes that we experience within the climate, which that also means that it's a really big driver of year-to-year changes in our disaster risk, which is how that ended up landing me in the insurance world. But yeah, so I have kind of an unexpected background for insurance, but it actually is a really large and growing segment, not just of insurance, but of the financial sector, that earth scientists who think about how the climate system may change are now starting to try to translate those impacts out into the broader economy. So it's actually a really rapidly growing field. And and I don't think you mentioned you, you went to UT Austin for your PhD. I went to UT Austin for my PhD and Carleton College in Minnesota for my undergrads. I just moved out to California here in the last couple of months. All right, Carlton. Great school. All right, let's jump into this. So how are insurance companies getting more sophisticated planning for climate change? And I know that's a broad question, but hopefully that'll frame some of the things. <laughs> We're starting off big, right? So right. like I said, the insurance industry uses these tools called catastrophe models to think about big disasters. And they've been using them for roughly 30 years. They really came into prominence in the aftermath of Hurricane Andrew when a whole slew of insurance companies went out of business because Hurricane Andrew was several times larger than any prior historical event in the last, you know, in the 40 years or so of data prior to that. So what that meant was that for our most rare extreme events, just looking at our history is not sufficient to understand what those high impact events could look like. And that's how the field of catastrophe modeling got started. Great. So that still, these tools still have a view of history, but essentially what they do is they take, you know, historical information and they give it a little tweak. So, you know, what would have happened if this hurricane went a little further north or further south, or if it were a little more intense, or if there were a little more storm surge? So it allows you to explore not just what happened, but what are some plausible outcomes based on what we know about historical events. Wonderful. Very powerful tool for looking at extremes. But the downside is you're still using history. So that means that we have to, I mean, we have teams of climate atmospheric scientists in my group 
whose job it is is to take these models and reinterpret them in the light of what we know is changing with climate change. So trying to make adjustments to these models to incorporate climate impacts on the disasters that we experience. Okay, I think you just answered my next question, though. So you have this catastrophe model, and then you have a climate model. And you, just, you I think right there at the end, you sort of explain what the difference is, because my experience, I've done scenario planning, and they do climate models. And I don't think I work for the National Park Service. I don't think anyone ever brought up a catastrophe model, but it sounds like that would have been very useful as part of that discussion. Yeah, it's funny. We're like this weirdo little corner of the insurance world. Even within the insurance world, we're not, I would say, hugely well-known But these are very powerful, statistically-based tools that let you look far out into the tail of an extreme event distribution. So that means, you know, not just events that happen every five years or every 10 years, but we can, I use these data sets that are tens of thousands of years long. I can look at what a 100-year event or a 250-year event or a 1,000-year event could look like. And it helps us to explore things that are plausible but haven't yet happened. You can think of them almost like a like a counterfactual, meaning near misses, but how could that have been better and how could that have potentially been worse? Really helpful for climate risk, but in some ways kind of limited. So there are some places where we explicitly incorporate climate change into these models and it's baked in today and we're already using it. A good example there is sea level rise. These models are built with essentially near current sea levels, which you'd be like, okay, catastrophe is like, what catastrophe is sea level rise? It is not itself a disaster, right? The difference between a hazard and a disaster. It's not causing these big impacts yet. But if you're looking at a hurricane model, that hurricane model has to incorporate a view of storm surge. So we don't just use the, you know, 100 years of history of how high of a storm surge that hurricanes produced, we look at the size of the additional storm surge that a hurricane produces and stick it on top of current sea level. So that's a way of explicitly baking in a climate driven trend into our catastrophe models today. I talk with a lot of folks dealing with flooding and even my own previous experience in natural resources that the the language like a one in a hundred year flood event or one in a thousand year flood event. And people are really getting annoyed with those terms because people get real salty about that. (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, they're like, it's been three years since the last one in a thousand year event. Are you using that? I don't even know if that's like official terminology. They use that, but I don't know if that's actually even signed. I mean, there's a science to it, but do you guys use those that rhetoric when you're talking about catastrophe models? Within the industry, return periods are still a commonly used term, but you're right. They can be very easily misinterpreted if you don't understand what they mean. So a 100-year return period event means there's a 1% chance that an event will happen in any given year. Or if you want to think about it in terms of like the built environment, that means like a 26% chance that something will happen over the course of a mortgage, for example. So it can allow us to look at single year and cumulative probabilities of risk. So in that sense, it's very helpful. Uh, Believe me, I've heard all the pushback about why the one in a hundred year return period, and I get it. But I also think it's important to understand that much of our built environment is itself designed around these return periods. So understanding frequency of hazard and how that intersects with the frequency that our levees, that our stormwater infrastructure, that our built environment was designed to protect against can give you a really clear and concrete way to say, this is the point where this piece of infrastructure fails. So this is an area that my team has been exploring a lot lately. When we talk about 
sort of climate driven tipping points. Everybody talks about, you know, the collapse of ocean circulation patterns in the Atlantic or, you know, the Amazon rainforest going away or permafrost spitting methane in the atmosphere, all these sort of very extreme scenarios. But what a catastrophe model allows you to do is it allows you to explore places where very small changes in hazard will lead to very large changes in impacts. And many of those actually happen around these built ups or defenses or assumptions that we have about protection in our built environment. So I'll give you an example of a study that we did in partnership with a flood modeling firm called Fathom, where we looked at you know, our portfolio, our book of business in the New Orleans metro area. So New Orleans has spent 14 billion and counting on upgrading its levy infrastructure in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. And that design standard is now up to about 100-year return period event. That means it protects against your one in 100. But if you get much beyond that, your defenses are overtopped and your risk inside of those levees goes up really rapidly. So the problem is if you look at that one in 100-year return period event today, and you look at all of the buildings that are located sort of in the interior part of the New Orleans metro area that sit inside of these new upgraded levees, those areas look like they are at zero risk. But if you add a few inches of sea level, and you can argue about how much over a levee you have to go before it is at risk of failing, but the more you go over the top, the more it's at risk of failing, that a few inches of sea level rise for an individual home inside of the New Orleans area might mean eight feet of water depth for that homeowner. So even though the hazard, the slow chronic sea level rise has only gone up a couple of inches, the impact has gone from zero, you're protected by the levee, to the first floor of your building is completely inundated. You are underwater up to your head because of these critical sensitivities in our built environment. So I get nobody likes return periods, but it allows us to understand where those frequencies of hazard line up with the frequencies that our defenses can help protect against. Wow, that's pretty much the most detailed explanation of those. They've always been very generic kind of conversations. All right, I'm going to pivot a little bit here and let's talk about hurricanes. And I imagine as a hurricane approaches the United States, I'm sure people in your industry are thinking about it in much different ways and just putting aside any potential human tragedy, get that. It's just, I'm sure you guys are like, okay, what's this going to mean for the insurance industry? And people always think about Florida. I want to talk a little bit about a paper that I you have submitted, but I think it's been accepted, but it's hurricane risk management strategies for insurers in a changing climate. And that was a real, I don't read a lot of journal articles or papers, but this was really good. And I want to read a sentence here, and I think it, it, it's going to lead into our conversation. And I really loved it because it, you broke down exactly what you're trying to do here is tracking and understanding the rapidly evolving scientific literature, contextualizing the level of uncertainty, and turning climate hazards into decision-relevant metrics. And I must be really boring if I'm very excited by that sentence, but I think that's like a three-part way in that paper where you're describing, okay, this is what we needed to kind of think about and do. I think I don't even know if they're like recommendations or just sort of steps on how to deal with it, but give us a little context of that paper. Yes. Essentially, what you're describing there is a role that like I said, we're seeing growing immensely both in insurance and in the broader financial sector, really in the broader economy, which is this role of a climate translator. That means someone who's functional in the climate science can keep up with everything that's happening, right? That, that science is changing all the time. It's changing every day. But you also need to understand the context in which that information gets used in your particular business. 
because that changes how you interpret that information. So for example, you know, I sit in an insurance company, we write policies one year at a time. We think out for portfolio management, maybe five, 10 out at 30 years, maybe at the longer end. Versus if I'm designing like a bridge, I need to be understanding scientific uncertainty out in the 75 to 100 year time frame, meaning the design lifetime of the structure that I'm trying to build. So different groups have a different tolerance for the time frame that you need information, the spatial scale at which that information has to be useful, and the, the cumulative tolerance for something going horrifically wrong, right? Insurers have a standard set of metrics that we use that essentially help us capture how much capital we need to have on hand to be able to pay out claims during a big disaster. That's part of what we do in event response as a hurt, you know, a hurricane, like we just had Hurricane Ian go and hit Florida. Part of my job is that hurricane is approaching the shore is to understand how large of a financial loss is possible so that we can make sure that we have our capital allocated to be able to, to pay those claims when they inevitably come in. But the way that I like to think of this, like to, to simplify this is, okay, I'm an infrastructure planner. I have to think out in a relatively long time frame to manage climate risk. Wonderful. Am I an infrastructure planner who's planning a road or am I planning a nuclear facility? Both of them have a relatively long time scale that you assume that they will be in place, but your tolerance for failure at that nuclear facility is a lot lower than your tolerance for having your road go up underwater every once in a while. So it's not just understanding the hazard, say your risk of flooding, it's understanding how that hazard will translate into business decisions and business outcomes. So yeah, I mean, that's one of the, the key pieces that, that I talk about in that paper. So it's part of a book called Hurricane Risk in a Changing Climate that has a mix of sort of practitioners like me, as well as scientists who are working on how climate change affects hurricane risk. And these cross-cutting groups where you get a bunch of nerds in a room to go talk to each other, I think is something we essentially just need to have a lot more of to be able to make these conversations about risk much more real make that research more relevant, help decision makers figure out what they actually are ready to act on. I want to talk a little bit more about that paper because it was it really described how you can make dealing with future projections manageable in the insurance industry of all industries. Are, it's very important for you guys. And maybe walk us through just for a little bit, this notion of sub perils. And so this, this is your way of breaking down like, okay, well, we have all these impacts associated with a hurricane, but a sub peril, what do you mean by that? So... I get probably the most common climate change question that I get, both from people within my business, regulators, rating agencies, reinsurance, all of the inside and outside actors that I talk to. The most common question that I get from them is, how are hurricanes going to change with climate change? Mm -hmm. Wonderful. That question is so big as to be basically meaningless. The way that we try to think about this internally within Liberty is that we break that hazard, a hurricane, apart into its constituent parts. So what are the things that can cause damage within a hurricane? There's the wind, there's the storm surge, and then there's the rainfall are sort of the three big components. And then there are characteristics that are associated with each of those, sort of the distribution of your intensity, your category ones versus your category fives. The storm surge is usually pretty straightforward, although that's going to intersect with, like we were talking about, defenses like levees. And then hurricane rainfall will be affected by things like 
you know, not just how warm the air and the sea surface temperatures are, but also things like how quickly a storm degrades once, once it goes inland. And the reason why we break all these things apart is that there is a different level of scientific confidence associated with each one of these. So sea level rise is a good example of the most bread and butter climate impact that you can ask for. We're measuring it very clearly today. Right. We can map out sort of along all the coasts how much sea level rise there is in each area because not just one number. There are some areas like the Northeast have local sea level that is rising more quickly than sort of the global average because that land in the Northeast is actually sinking. And there are a few other factors as well. So we have these very detailed views of sea level and we add storm surge on top of it. That's as clean and nice and well-behaved of a climate impact as you can ask for, which means that we can do forward-looking scenarios that allow us to do more detailed analyses and look for compounding risks. So kind of like what I talked with New Orleans, that was an example of a scenario analysis where we add on future time steps of sea level and, you know, out at 2100, there's quite a lot of uncertainty. But remember, I'm an insurer. So I'm looking largely in the like 10 to 30 year time frame. And that allows me to do these more detailed, you know, these are where my, my tipping points are. This is where I could get compounding events where a disaster itself causes secondary disasters, which is really common with flood risk in particular. And it, it just allows for a more thorough accounting of potential hazards if you can do scenarios. So that's sort of the highest confidence bucket of our hurricane risk. Sort of in the medium confidence bucket where we know that the risk is likely going up, but not necessarily by how much because there are some weirdo factors that might be getting involved is hurricane rainfall. Having more rain when your air temperatures and your sea surface temperatures are warmer is a pretty well-behaved climate impact. But there are situations where it can get exacerbated, like if a hurricane is stalling. So like hurricanes Harvey or Florence, where the fact that the storm is moving slowly exacerbates your rainfall totals. Is some of that climate change hotly debated in the literature? So we know the rainfall is going up, but we don't necessarily know by how much. So in those cases, we use what we call a sensitivity analysis, where you take your, your model or your hazard and you vary just that piece of the model. So you say, okay, what if my hurricane rainfall goes up 10%, 30%, 50%? That allows you to see, does that actually have a big impact on your business and on your decision making? So an example that I like to give here is like Hurricane Ida had a massive inland rainfall footprint, particularly into like New Jersey and New York, caused you know, a tragic overwhelming of stormwater protection systems throughout a big chunk of densely populated part of the Northeast. But for helping my business understand that risk, a lot of that risk ended up falling in the homeowners area where the flood risk actually goes into the National Flood Insurance Program. So that's an example of an area where even if the risk is going up, it's not an area that my business is particularly sensitive to, as opposed to the commercial side of my business is very sensitive to increases in rainfall. So that's where we need to sort of understand the difference between the different pieces of the business. That's what I can do as a translator who sits with a foot on either side. Now, the hardest one, unfortunately, because it's also the one that tends to be the highest impact is wind. So, you know, I... It's funny, I taught, I spend a lot of time talking with hurricane researchers and uh, one of them wrote a, a very sassy paper recently where they, uh, this Adam Sobel and a group at Columbia University and a few other sort of prominent hurricane researchers, they wrote a paper 
where their headline of the paper that, you know, they put it in the description in the, in the abstract, they said, the state of the science on hurricane frequency is not great. Right. So that is the best available knowledge says we don't know if hurricanes are going up or down. We don't know why there are as many as there are now. We don't know how they will change in the future. There's not a lot we can do there. So as a risk manager, I look at that and I'm like, well, this is not very helpful. But again, this is where that understanding of having the foot on the other side and the business side can help me triage to figure out what scientific questions do I need to solve today? And where do I actually have room to let this play out? And this is where understanding the impacts on society can help us. So it turns out that you know, hurricanes are, you know, all tend to be fairly damaging, but the vast majority of the damage that comes from hurricanes comes from the strongest subset of hurricanes, your major hurricanes, category three and above. So depending on who's counting, those hurricanes in the U.S. are responsible for something like 80 to 90 percent of the economic losses of the hurricanes that have made landfall in the U.S. in history. So what that tells me is I don't have to solve the problem today of how many hurricanes are there going to be. I instead need to focus on how will the most intense hurricanes change. So there we have a lot better information. We do think that the most intense hurricanes, once you form a hurricane, the likelihood that it intensifies or in some cases rapidly intensifies to become a very strong storm is going up. So that's an area where then I can explore to see like, where is my business sensitive to these most intense hurricanes, narrows the scope of the problem and allows me to put that decision out in front of my business in a way that's meaningful to them. So it respects that there still is a lot of scientific uncertainty, but still gives me enough information to start acting within my organization. Well, I thought this was really useful. You know, this is how you guys operate, but this idea of sub perils is t- you're helping take away some of that uncertainty because you're approaching something you already know. And then that leads into kind of translating those climate impact into metrics that actually tie into decision making. And I think that the sausage making or what's kind of happening behind the curtain, but as an insurance company, you actually have to be writing checks. And so this process of, okay, well, there's all this uncertainty associated with climate change. And what you just described, though, that's your best, I guess, attempt at trying to take away that uncertainty. And do you find that even Liberty Mutual, and I just imagine the insurance industry as a whole, not they don't necessarily always take <laughs> Do they take your advice when you're kind of breaking these things down? It to go from where you are to someone there who's writing checks. You see what I mean? That it could be a big leap before they're like, "All right, well, we're we're not quite sure we really buy this kind of thing." Yeah, you know, it's funny because uh, I like to tell my team this quite a lot that I think a research and development role, the role of a scientist within an organization like mine, this is a sales role. R and D is a sales position, and it's funny because my dad is a paper salesman, so I always go into every problem thinking about it, like, how will I get the person that I'm trying to talk to, to understand where I'm coming from, get input from them and come to a solution that we can mutually agree on. Now, does this mean I say you guys do X and they do X and there's never any disagreement? Of course not. But it's a way that we can collaboratively produce knowledge that allows us to all act together in a way that reduces our risk and can help our customers reduce their risk as well. But, you know, I think it's not just an insurance problem because you can use the same approach. How much information do I need to make a decision? And you can apply it throughout the built environment. 
So if we want to go back to the example of New Orleans again, I mean, we talked a lot about the levees and how, you know, over a certain, any flooding below a certain amount doesn't really affect the city all that much. And any flooding above that amount affects it a lot. We can see a similar sort of sensitivity, sort of a risk of a compounding effect with its electric grid. Because in the aftermath of Hurricane Ida, the power grid in the New Orleans metro area failed and it failed for weeks. Interestingly, even though Hurricane Ida was a Category 4 hurricane, you would think that would really drive most of the fatalities in Louisiana. Most of the fatalities in Louisiana actually came from the power outage and heat wave that followed in the aftermath. Right. So there are real life and safety implications for these weaknesses in our critical infrastructure. So if I'm trying to understand what is the risk of a hurricane causing a compounding loss in the New Orleans metro, again, I don't really care what happens with sort of my lower intensity hurricanes because my infrastructure is designed to protect against it. But I care a whole lot about how often I expect winds in the city to exceed the design standards of my transmission system, because that is the point where you have a critical failure and your risks start to compound. In the insurance industry, we actually think of these critical infrastructure sensitivities or weaknesses as a risk multiplier for any of our climate-related hazards. Because it turns out it doesn't actually matter what the hazard is. If you have infrastructure that is likely to fail, that makes it that much more likely that you'll get these compounding multiple you know, stacked on top of each other types of events. And we've seen it over and over again. Hurricane Ida with the power grid failure, levee failures in Katrina, stormwater infrastructure being overwhelmed in the New York City area, the Texas freeze event that caused billions of dollars in pipe burst claims from the lack of the power grid collapsing there a few years ago. So all of these are ways where it allows us to not, again, have to figure out exactly what the hazard is going to be It allows us to say anything that happens in this area is going to be made worse because the infrastructure is in such poor shape, which means that investments in improving that infrastructure pay dividends throughout the broader economy. Okay, I want to do a pivot here. And you you answered my risk multiplier question, too. That's fantastic. (laughs) All right. We're going to talk about an an area that maybe you don't even have a strong opinion about. That's trying to be funny. There is, you know. The climate modeling as an industry, it is probably one of the few areas. <laughs> it's one oh of the few, one of the few areas in the adaptation resilience space where it seems like the private sector is kind of jumping in a big way. People are still not quite sure how they're making money in the resilience space, but the, these climate models, these big data um, users or generators are coming in, and. I want your opinion. What what's the lay of the land there? Because it, it's a bit wild, wild west at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, that's a really good way of describing it. I would term it like, you know, it would be like what would happen if every doctor didn't need a medical license. I've had used textbook sellers try to sell me climate analytics. I've had, you know, random, well, we, you know, we have our climate data products, but let me tell you, we're in the process of trying to hire the data scientist who is going to construct our intellectual property for us. There's, it leaves a lot to be desired. And the reason why this is important is that much of this information is going out to the public, meaning that people are trying to make decisions in this sea of a mix of good information and a lot of really not good information. These decisions have real world consequences because now 
climate data analytics are being put on real estate sites. They're being incorporated into, you know, rating agency decisions. They're being incorporated into more and more places within our economy where we understand that the climate risk is changing. That, you know, I'm right on board with that. But if you try to take climate model output, you're like, well, I'm going to take this climate model that's producing data and, you know, it's on a 100 kilometer grid. And I want to understand how that will affect this building in my portfolio. It turns out that our ability to take sort of larger scale information on the climate model and bring it down to very small spatial scales is actually really limited. It gets to that question that we were talking about earlier, that there are situations where we not only don't know how much change there will be, we may not even know the direction of the change once you start getting down to really small spatial scales. You know, aside from just the fact that there are a lot of people who have no background in climate, but are kind of interested in it, who've put out data prize. So let's set aside the problem of people who don't know what they're doing. That's its own, as you say, the Wild West It's out there. It's a problem. But to me, there are a couple of fundamental problems for interpreting even good climate data if you want to use it for decision making. So there's a problem of time scale, meaning climate models are going to be giving you the most effective information at relatively long timescales because further out into the future, you know, we're continuing to emit carbon into the atmosphere. Your forcing, meaning the hammer that you're using to hit the climate is larger relative to your internal natural variability. So that means over long time periods, you tend to average out the year to year your you know, did you have an El Nino or a La Nina this year? Are there sort of decadal scale things that have been happening in the climate since forever? But, you know, over very long time periods, you can kind of average those out. But we're not making decisions out to 2100. I mean, some people are, but the insurance industry generally is not. We're trying to make decisions about, you know, the length of this mortgage, where those internal sort of smaller scale, temp, you know, the temporal scales where we're working are not really at the strengths of either climate models or, frankly, catastrophe models, right? It sits in kind of this woolly middle area. The first one is an issue of time scale. The second one is an issue of spatial scale. There was this really cool study recently that looked at a bunch of, they chose a bunch of like major financial centers. So like New York and London and Zurich, I, I forget which, which, which all cities they selected. And what they did is instead of looking at a climate model average, for important extreme events that we care about. So extremes in temperature and extremes in rainfall, which are some of our best behaved extremes that come out of the climate model. And they said, instead of just taking the average, which, you know, on average, temperature goes up, on average, extreme precip goes up, we're going to look at every climate model ensemble member, meaning a slightly perturbed initial state is allowed to run. And you can do this tens or hundreds of times. And when you look at the distribution, the spread at any one individual, even on scale of a whole city, right? So like 100 kilometers on a side, they found that in many of these cases, we don't even know the direction of the change of loss, much less what the actual change will be. So on average, across hundreds of simulations, you get what you expect, which is that, you know, your extreme rainfall goes up, your extreme heat goes up. But for any individual city, it will not experience that merge together average, it's going to experience any one of those ensemble matters. So it might go up, it might go down. 
The reason why that's important is that we're trying to make these adaptation decisions. And if you spend resources adapting to something that's not going to happen, not only have you not adapted to the change that's coming your way, you've then wasted the resources that could have potentially gone into that adaptation. So that's the second one. There's time, there's spatial scale. And then the last one that has gotten comparatively less attention are structural uncertainties in climate models. So there are certain things that climate models for basically ever have not simulated well. They're very good at things like carbon budgets, global mean temperature, their you know, sea level rise once you get around the questions of like ice sheets and things. But the smaller regional patterns that matter a lot for the kinds of decisions that a city needs to make. Hey, am I going to be water stressed in the future or do I need to plan for flood risk? are strongly affected by some of the things that climate models are not designed to do well. So, you know, like I said, I'm an El Nino, La Nina researcher. That's my area of specialty. And the reason why I used a thousand-year-old dead corals is because climate models are not great at simulating that process, which is a giant problem because it's the main way that we tell which areas are going to get wetter and which areas are going to get drier in any given year. Also, a really big driver of things like hurricane frequency. So La Niña's tend to foster more hurricanes in the Atlantic. So I often hear this talking point that, well, you know, the IPCC says that the number of hurricanes or the number of tropical cyclones globally is on average is going to go down and that that may be particularly the case in the Atlantic. But what if that assumption just reflects the fact that climate models tend to produce too many El Niños, which tend to cut hurricanes? So because of known well-understood structural problems in a climate model, when you try to understand some regional process that's important to you, it doesn't even matter if you're at the right time scale or spatial scale. It just may not be designed to answer the question that you're trying to ask it. So that's where, again, you kind of need to have like one foot in each of these worlds. You need to understand the science and the decision you're trying to make to figure out which ones of these actually matter enough that it changes your decision making. Okay, so I, I'm curious about the wild, wild west nature of this. And so that you were, that was great to sort of explain where you can kind of trip up and why some things might not be accurate. But I just imagine out there, let's say it is a big real estate firm that's, they're dealing with a local government that wants them to factor in climate change. They really don't care how accurate this climate data company really is. And the beauty of that too for them is that they don't necessarily have to be that accurate even over the midterm. And so it's no one's kind of ground truthing what's going on out there. I mean, there isn't really any policing. You have the sophistication to sort of say, oh, I can look under the hood here and see they're going to have problems here. But you're just a local government planner and you want to do the right thing and you want to do some of this climate modeling. But it just there's a whole spectrum of people who could just take advantage of that. And I think that's probably happening right now. And even people who mean well, you're a conservation group. You don't have people on staff to do climate modeling, but you hire a climate modeler to come in. And it, it seems like your industry is probably one of the few where you're hurting yourself if you just are using bad information and you're using a bad process. Because at the end of the day, if you're doing that, then you're probably gonna have to pay out more if it's not accurate. But you see what I mean? It just seems like there's no way to police this at the moment, right? I've heard this described as the difference between a weather problem and a climate problem. Because a weather problem, if you're local weather forecast is wrong every single day, you're going to know it pretty quick and you're, you know, the free market will knock you out of business in no time. The problem with climate data analytics is you could say, okay, well, you know, it will eventually kind of weed through the people who know what they're doing and the ones who don't, because the ones who don't will see that they're wrong and will move on. But if you're making predictions that are 30 years in the future, 
it may take a really long time to get that process sorted out. And you may have wasted a lot of resources, a lot of people's time. You may have made some bad real world decisions because you thought you knew what you were doing in the climate space. And it turns out that you really didn't. People tend to think of this, they're like, oh, well, you know, everybody's just, you know, maybe they're just checking a box for a regular. There's no downside to being wrong. But there are real downsides to doing this climate adaptation wrong, which is the risk of maladaptation. So investing in trying to deal with some climate impact that you think is happening and not using those resources in the right way. And in some cases, potentially making those resources worse. The way that, you know, that I recommend, you know, for my internal teams and the, that I recommend within the industry to think about what kinds of climate data can you trust? And how can you use them in a meaningful way is that you need to understand the pieces of climate-related extremes that climate modeling does well. So what do they do well? They do extremes in temperature very well. They do extremes in rainfall, particularly increases in extreme rainfall, pretty well. And, and at least in the near term, they do sea level rise pretty well. Now you'd be like, okay, well, that doesn't tell me anything about hurricanes. It doesn't tell me anything about wildfires. It doesn't tell me anything about floods. But it, if you go with that approach that we talked about earlier of breaking those big headline disasters, I mean, climate models are not simulating wildfires well, but if you break those disasters down into their component pieces, it can give you information about how that risk is likely to change in a way that you can trust. So, you know, wildfire is another great example. We don't necessarily know what's going to happen with wildfire. There are some areas where it's going to increase. There are some areas where it's going to decrease. We've got some complicated sort of ecology problems that need to be worked out. But one of the big trends that has really emerged with wildfire in recent years is that wildfires are tending to get bigger because of increases in heat. So this seems kind of counterintuitive, like, well, how, do, how does it just being hot outside drive a wildfire? But it turns out that if it's hot outside, it doesn't actually matter if it's rained a little bit last week. If it's 110 degrees, you're going to be so freaking hot, you're going to suck all the moisture out of your vegetation and out of your soil, and you're going to prime it to burn. So even though the climate model is not telling you anything about wildfire, it's telling you a lot about how temperature extremes can change. And that can give you information about how you need to think about wildfire risk. And that is likely to increase in many areas for that well-behaved physical reason. So knowing what you can and can't trust out of the model is allows you to sift through, you know, someone who's saying, okay, well, I can give you ultra detailed information about how often it's going to hail in this very specific location down to the year. Like you should probably look at that with a skeptical eye. This is a, its own episode too, just talking specifically <laughs> about that. And I, I need to find uh, someone who can talk. If you guys are out there listening, just so the legal implications of maladaptation, because I... I haven't talked enough about maladaptation. It's just it's opening up a can of worms there. And it's going to paralyze a lot of, I think, local governments when they're just trying to make the right decisions and they're going to do wrong things. But I'm going to pivot. I got to pivot again here. And again, this is a non-controversial subject, that, but you seem game to talk about those. And let I want to talk because Hurricane Ian and I, we think of Florida, we think of hurricanes. Let's talk about citizens' property insurance. Why I'm bringing it up is just it, it's such it's not behaving rationally as an insurance player, whereas Liberty Mutual tries the best they can to behave rationally as a free market enterprise. 
and how the di- disruptive nature, and I guess this the, the lack of science driving decisions there, and it's, it's illogical. And I think that's interesting. That's useful to my listeners. And I don't think a lot of them know enough about citizens. So, so I'm from Florida originally, and it, it was created. But if you could give just a brief explanation, what is citizens insurance in relation to the other insurance companies in Florida? Yeah. So the Florida insurance market is very unique relative to the rest of sort of the U.S. insurance property market. In some sense, it does have some mirrors in a few other states, places like California and Texas have these essentially plans of last resort. They are, you know, government backed. They are designed to be an insurance policy that will never turn you down, that you will always have access to. And citizens fills that function in the state of Florida. So it was, you know, kind of the, the predecessor or the precursor to it was formed in the aftermath of Hurricane Andrew. And after the 04, 05 hurricane seasons, which of course were enormously active, citizens ended up taking over a very large proportion of the market in Florida. And the reason why that happened is that many of the larger insurance companies kind of backed away from Florida. They saw it as not a particularly good risk and largely left the state. So many of the private insurance companies that were left in the state of Florida were these relatively small local actors, which means that they have a different set of needs than sort of a larger, sort of well-diversified national or international writer of business. Because if something hits the state of Florida and you only write business in the state of Florida, that means all of your policyholders are being hit kind of at the same time. You don't get the benefit of geographic diversification that a larger insurance company is able to take advantage of. So the way that those smaller Florida insurance companies have traditionally handled this problem is that they have bought backup protection, which is known as reinsurance. Reinsurance is insurance for insurance companies, which sounds like boring squared, but they're essentially, they deal with the biggest, meanest, nastiest disasters that our industry handles, right? They're, they are meant to be They only deal with very large risks. And so Florida hurricane risk or a Florida only rider falls in that bucket. And that was okay for a long time because after the 0405 season, Florida had a very long stretch, more than a decade, that was extremely quiet from a hurricane standpoint. And now this was likely just, you know, kind of luck of the draw. But it meant that those small companies could take advantage of the fact that the reinsurance market softened for a long time. So prices went down, reinsurance was relatively accessible and cheap to get. There was a lot of available capital within the reinsurance market. So they could buy reinsurance relatively cheaply and allow them to protect their capital. And therefore, they could go out and they could continue to do business. Now, what's changed is that we have come out of that relatively quiet period. Really, things started turning around in the 2017 season with Harvey, Irma, and Maria, as well as the beginning of a very active period of California wildfires. So suddenly, there wasn't as much capital around in the reinsurance market. It was no longer as inexpensive because now more insurance or the same amount of insurance companies were trying to access a smaller pool of capital. So the prices went up. The Florida insurance market has been struggling for the last few years because of that. And I believe we were up to, as as of my, when I last checked, we were at six insurance, Florida insurance companies that had been declared insolvent prior to Hurricane Ian making landfall. So prior to Ian, it really had been relatively quiet since Hurricane Irma. You know, I mean, I, I hear a lot of these stories of, okay, well, you know, climate change is going to, you know, cause impacts on the insurance markets. And 
you know, in an indirect way, if you say that reinsurers have had to pay out more for large losses, like maybe if you almost squint, you can kind of get there. But really, the most important things that were happening in the Florida insurance market were sort of small, comparatively undercapitalized insurance companies that didn't have a lot of geographic diversification. So they had relatively little buffer. And then it was compounded by the very unique sort of litigation environment that exists in the state of Florida, where even though it makes up not that large of a percentage of claims, it's disproportionately responsible for the amount of litigation, so the legal fees that the insurance industry has to pay. So basically what happens in Florida or has been happening over the last few years, there have been some legislative fixes to try and get at this problem, but they haven't really worked their way into the market yet, is that you know you could have a contractor show up to your house after a storm of some kind and say, hey, do you want a free roof? And, you know, I mean, who, who doesn't want a free roof? That seems fine. They say, you know, sign over your rights to be paid by your insurance company to us called assignment of benefits. And we'll give you a free roof. Your insurance will take care of it. And you don't have to do anything which from an individual perspective sounds pretty good. But it's one of those classic, what's the the tragedy of the commons problems? Because what those contractors would do is that, you know, they had, they partnered with some legal teams that they would go and they would sue the insurance company to get greater amounts of funding for that repair on every single contract that they write or the majority of the contracts that they performed. So for an insurance company, you know, the legal fees to go fight each one of these are large enough and the costs to settle are small enough that the economically rational decision is to just say, okay, I'm just going to settle because that's going to be the cheaper way to solve this problem. But if that happens on every single roof in the state of Florida, you can imagine that eventually that, that money has to come from somewhere and it was coming through insurance premiums. So it's coming from prices going up. You know, it turns out that prices going up and reinsurers having to continue to pay out, even though there haven't been a lot of big cats, made it a comparatively unattractive market for the reinsurance market. So all of this is to say, it's easy to say climate change is to blame for, you know, problems in the property insurance market. But I think it's important to not give in to sort of the easy pat answer when it really is a complex mix of politics and the economy and a legal environment and a change in sort of underlying hazard. Okay. And so I, I guess where I, I don't know if I'm disagreeing with you. Like, I, I don't know if so many people are arguing that climate change is the cause, but a lot of us that are kind of looking at Florida, we want them to start behaving rationally. And if you look at sea level rise models, it's it should be a state that's not encouraging growth along the coast, but in fact, they just hit the accelerator on that. And so I guess back to the point of citizens insurance, if the free market was working properly, which hopefully it's working in other states, it, it would just be discouraging this sort of growth along the coast because no one would insure it. And then a citizen comes along and it's not even I don't even know if it's you could call it an insurance company because everything that you've talked about today in this episode, all these these workings of how an insurance thinks about climate change and sub perils and all this sort of, I, do they even have those people at Citizens? It's just like they're giving out these policies and they're not factoring in at all any long term thinking. Do they think about even the science of okay, well we know sea level rise is coming, but we're not in factoring that at all in any of our premiums and who we make eligible because it sounds like anyone could be eligible. All it's doing is encouraging all this irrational behavior in Florida. And I guess that's what I'm getting at. And so like if the insurance companies were allowed to sort of operate in their very cold, calculating free market ways, growth should have slowed tremendously 20 years ago in Florida. But in fact, it's accelerated through the roof in the last 10 years. 
So we like to think of the insurance industry as being the policymaker of last resort. By the time you have a, a sort of large hazardous event become a disaster, meaning that it's had a large material impact on a state, on a community, it means that there are a variety of decisions that could have been made along the way to reduce that risk that haven't happened. So it gets to us, right? So it's not that, well, you know, the insurance company didn't tell people to stop developing here. It's that, you know, zoning decisions were made that allow people to continue to intensify their building right along the coast. Economic incentives that, you know, it continues to be economically beneficial in a state like Florida to be living on the coast. Building codes that think about things like wind, but maybe are not as aggressive about including uh, upgrades for water defense. You know, you mentioned sea level rise. And then, of course, <laughs> the fact that we continue to be dumping carbon into the atmosphere that's exacerbating all of these hazards that are coming its way, right? So there are like six or seven bad decisions that got made along the way to get you to the point where a hurricane like Hurricane Ian can come through and, you know, I mean, any hurricane is going to be damaging. You're never going to have a complete lack of disasters. But the choices that we make can either exacerbate or reduce those disasters. So as an insurance company, you know, by the time somebody's writing an insurance policy, the, the building is already there. So we kind of have to work with the built environment as it is. So in sort of an open market, the risk-based pricing that we can assign to a location can tell you something about, is this a high-risk location or is this a low-risk location? That's information to the owner of that property that can allow them to make better decisions to say, hey, this is a high-risk area. Maybe I should you know, think about investing in hardening my home and improving you know, wildfire area, clearing brush around my home, building defensible space or whatever. But you know, there's this tendency to want to say, okay, well, you know, insurance pricing is going to fix this so that I, as a policymaker, am not the one who's left making this uncomfortable policy decision that needs to be made. And I think that the timescale and the social dislocation that will go along with that are large enough that it would be better if it could happen a little bit further up the chain. So, you know, I think the insurance industry has a, a lot of value in doing climate adaptation because, like I said, we have, you know, risk-based pricing, ideally, right? We do have some limitations on where and how we're allowed to include climate change when we price policies, depending on which market you're looking at. So, for example, in the state of California, we actually are not allowed to use catastrophe models of any kind to price wildfire. And we have to use a historical view. We cannot use a forward-looking or climate-inflected view of wildfire risk. So on the one hand, we are being asked to mitigate the climate, you know, disclose the amount of climate risk in your book of business, but on the other hand, are not allowed to actually incorporate that into our underwriting. So there can be some logistical hurdles to incorporating climate risk into a pricing and a view of risk. But I also think we can be a really powerful partner and a, a powerful partner for change. I feel like I spend all my time talking about building codes. I love building codes. And I say building codes and people fall asleep. But we have a partnership with a nonprofit research organization called the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety. And they do these really cool experiments where they essentially throw a variety of different disasters at different types of home construction or business construction. And it allows us to understand what are the critical things that you need to protect to keep a structure together to reduce its potential for damage. 
and they have a lot of cool stuff there. You know, they got like a hail cannon and like they this like ember tunnel and a wind tunnel. And, you know, they have lots of interesting ways to essentially like demolish a building. And there are some really important things that we've learned through that partnership through the years that can influence how we do that climate adaptation. So for wind, the thing that we've learned through their research and other engineering research is that the most important thing for a structure to survive a wind event, whether it's a hurricane, whether it's a tornado, whether it's a straight line wind like a derecho, is to keep the roof attached to the walls and keep the walls attached to the ground. So that's why in a state like Florida, you find that people go and install things like hurricane straps because that small intervention produces a lot of value in its likelihood of keeping the roof on the building and therefore keeping the building intact. So we in the insurance industry can go incorporate those defenses into our view of risk for, you know, when we go into underwriting, when we go into pricing, and that can allow us to show people like this is an effective way of reducing risk. Now for something like wildfire, that's another area where, you know, we haven't traditionally thought of building codes as being hugely effective against wildfire. You're like, well, a wildfire comes through and burns everything to the ground. But it turns out that it looks like that may not always be the case, that there are things that we can do within our building codes, even for wildfire, that can dramatically reduce the risk. So there was an example from the Marshall Fire that I thought was particularly compelling. So the Marshall Fire happened a few months ago. It was the most destructive wildfire in Colorado history, destroyed something like a thousand homes and properties. If you look at the communities that were destroyed in this fire, there was an example of a neighborhood where part of the neighborhood that was upwind, and the reason why the Marshall Fire was so destructive, it had 100 mile an hour winds. It essentially was a grass fire, but if you blow on a grass fire hard enough, it can cause a lot of damage. So the homes in the older part of the neighborhood were largely built in the 1970s to the building codes that were in place in 1970. And every single one of those homes burned to the ground. But they had neighbors across the street in a newly built section of the neighborhood. They were built to new wildfire resistant building codes right around 2020 or so. And even though they were downwind in 100 mile an hour winds, and they were so close that they literally had melted pieces of their neighbor's homes stuck to and scattered all over their siding after the fire. Not a single one of those newly built homes in that neighborhood was lost. So there are things that we can do if we make good choices in our building codes. But you know, it was amazing. And there was some local reporting in the aftermath of this fire, right? So we know that we had some test cases where, you know, these are the ones that burned down. These are the ones that didn't. In this local reporting, it came out that there were some homeowners associations in some of the neighborhoods that burned or in some of the communities that burned. And those homeowners associations required for aesthetic reasons that your home have wood siding and wood shingles and wood fences. So essentially, in an era in which climate change is happening, in which wildfires are getting worse and are getting out into areas that traditionally would not have been as at high risk, these homeowners associations were requiring homeowners to cover their homes in matches. Those are the kinds of decisions that as an insurer, we can communicate out. We have those on the ground relationships with these communities to say, hey, you are not prepared for the risk of now much less the risk for 50 years from now, like those homes that were built in 1970. Okay. This was originally a question about 
citizens insurance, we got to the Marshall fire. So um, we did. No, <laughs> no, what you were doing there. I saw what you did there. Okay. This is more broad. This is hopefully a kind of a fun question. And what you're doing is obviously very important for people working in adaptation resilience. Do you feel like you're part of this emerging adaptation sector, like an adaptation professional, or do you are you just kind of in your own silo there? I mean, it, it's an emerging area, but sometimes people <laughs> even know that people are out there. And like, I just went to nobody even knows form. that we exist. <laughs> but do you do you try to kind of tap in, or do you find you have colleagues in this space? How do you stay involved in this, or is it even important that you do? And if you you don't, it's not important. Then that's fine too. Yeah, I mean, my favorite thing is trying to get smart people in this area over here to go talk to smart people in this area over here, and maybe for them to all go and train a bunch of students and send them over to my sector, right? So I actually do a ton of, you know, outreach to universities, working with professors who are working on these research problems that sit at this intersection of hazard and risk and disasters, and how that will all play out in a new climate. That being said, I think part of the reason why nobody has heard of catastrophe modeling, why we're not sort of well known in other parts of the adaptation world is what you describe, right? There are these sort of traditional silos, you know, academia hangs out over here, private sector hangs out over here, and never the twain shall meet. So that's an area that I think we really need to be doing better at as an industry and something that like insurance, you know, people say insurance and people like wrinkle their nose, right? Like, We do not have a fabulous reputation when, in fact, what we should be doing is we should be shouting our superpower from the rooftop, which is that we have a very unique set of information and understanding and tools about not just the hazard like climate scientists have, not just the built environment like sort of the the city planners and a lot of the engineering groups have, but we have a little bit of both and they know how to talk to each other. So I think there's a really critical role for communicating like, one, we have some juicy problems to work on, scientists, engineers, adaptation professionals come hang out with us, but also as a potential bridge in that we have decades of experience of getting those communities within our field, at least, to talk to each other. Now we just need to take it to a bigger stage. So have you ever heard of the National Adaptation Forum? I did. In fact, I I was invited to it this year, and sadly, I had just moved across the country yeah, I don't know that a ton of people from my sector participate in. And similarly, you know, we have our industry conferences that many people from outside of our industry don't participate in. So well, we should probably know, work on fixing that. Well, no, and it, I think it's both ways too. I mean, they've done a good job. I trying to expand, but it's, you know, it's, it was always more of a natural resource sector kind of conference, but they've really expanded, but still private sector representation is still not there. And I just went last week and, you know, it's great for me. I meet a lot of people that I'm interested in meeting there, but private sector, probably consultants who kind of help with, you know, government entities. And so like insurance companies, my sense is they weren't there much. And so it'd be great for you guys. But I mean, I think there's other conferences that are coming. I'm, I'm actually partnering with Battelle on a conference. I think they're appealing more to the corporate sector. And that's in Columbus, Ohio, March. You should consider going to that one and invite your friends. Indeed, the I have sector. heard about that. I have heard about that one as well. Yeah. No, well, and you know, it's interesting too, because we're at a point where we need to very rapidly scale up these communities and get people talking to each other. But we're also still trying to like claw our way out of the pandemic. So for example, you know, I'm sitting in the private sector. I have very limited ability to like travel to things. So as we try to build these new spaces for these groups to interact with each other, 
trying to think through creative ways to like bring together hybrid environments or take some of these communities online or set up virtual workshops where people can get together from across a variety of different areas might be a way to be able to reach those communities who otherwise you would have a hard time touching. Okay. Last question I ask all my guests, if you could recommend one person to come on this podcast, who would it be? One person. One. (laughs) I think you should talk to Adam Sobel at Columbia University. He is a hurricane researcher who has been working on building essentially the academic sector side of catastrophe models, but taking them outside of sort of the well-developed insurance markets and taking them out to, you know, broader segments of the world. All right. So do you know him? Do you make a kind of connection there? Sure. All right. Fabulous. Okay, Kelly, this has been fascinating, really getting behind the scenes of how the insurance industry works. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and the work that you're doing. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Kelly for joining the podcast. That was a fascinating discussion for me. I've talked frequently about how difficult it is for those doing adaptation planning to think decades in the future. The insurance industry, by necessity, needs to take as much uncertainty out of their financial planning as possible. Kelly took us through how they do some of that. I especially enjoyed discussing the sub-perils of climate risk and how that can lead to specific policy and financial decisions being made. So much adaptation planning is still just winging it. Also, there's still no silver bullet for governments and NGOs when it comes to doing climate modeling. It is an emerging industry, and it's incredibly difficult to know if the company you're working with has the most reliable information. As Kelly said, you can't ground truth their work if they are focusing on decades in the future. Hopefully, as more people get into this adaptation space, the sophistication in assessing these modeling tools will increase. We also discussed citizens' property insurance. I appreciated Kelly taking a crack at that, but obviously it can be a sensitive subject. I'd be interested in digging more into that issue. If you work in Florida and are familiar with groups that understand what's going on with citizens, please reach out. Florida is in the middle of a massive building boom. As a native Floridian, it's very frustrating that elected officials are making irresponsible and short-sighted planning decisions. With massive sea level rise in Florida's future, the conversation should be about managed retreat, not how many more housing units you can squeeze into the coastal areas. Citizens has prevented more logical policy decisions to be made. Well, at some point, even the state government won't be able to come to the rescue of ever-costly coastal development. All right. A reminder, check out the show notes for the Battelle Innovations and Climate Resilience Conference in Columbus, Ohio, March 28th through the 30th. Submit an abstract. Links are in my show notes. All right. What's your climate adaptation story? Do people that you engage with understand what you do in adaptation? Are you finding that that webinars and white papers really aren't resonating in ways that promote your work? Well, consider telling your story in a podcast. If you're interested in highlighting your adaptation story, consider sponsoring a whole episode of American Apps. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I go on location and record these sponsored podcasts, which allows you a wider diversity of guests to participate. You will work with me to identify experts that represent the amazing work you're doing. Some of my partners in this process have been NRDC, UPenn Wharton, World Wildlife Fund, UCLA, Harvard, corporate clients. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners who represent the most influential people in the adaptation space. Now consider most projects have communications written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. 
Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than white paper, webinar, many groups work into their communication strategies. There is no better platform than this podcast to get the word out on adaptation to some of the most influential and active adaptation professionals in the world. Learn more at the website. And if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. Folks, I do a lot of speaking. I bring this field of adaptation alive. I've done quite a few keynote presentations. I share stories from the podcast and my own lengthy experiences doing adaptation. You can contact me via the website americadapts.org. Okay, guys, you know, I say this every episode. And when I talk to you in person, you're always bringing it up. I love hearing from you. If you have an idea for guests, reach out. Just let me know what you do in the space. Even if you don't work in the space, I love hearing from you and how you get value out of the podcast. I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.